Hello, and welcome to Music Maps, the Rock and Roll Book Club podcast. In each episode, we use a place as a jumping off point for a conversation about music, anywhere from the obvious to the obscure. I'm Mark Hart, founder of the Rock and Roll Book Club, which is a celebration of the very best music writing. With me is Simon Cardwell, who reads a lot of music books and goes to a lot of gigs. Hello, Simon. How are you today? Hello, Mark. I'm very well. This is the first episode. So, Simon, we had a really good night last night, didn't we? We were at Walthamstow Trades Hall with the writer Daniel Rachel. Yes, it was a great night last night at the Trades Hall with Daniel, his two-tone book, which has been out for a little while now. Do you know what I think we should do? It makes sense to me. We should put the very first pin in our musical map in the city of Coventry. Yeah, who would have picked Coventry? You might have thought maybe London, New York, LA, but I think Coventry's the perfect place to start. I'm pretty sure over time we'll get to London and New York. So what do you know about Coventry? Um, the phrase... Being sent to Coventry is the main thing that comes to mind when I think of Coventry. What do you know about that phrase? Being sent to Coventry, um, invented during the Second English Civil War. Of course, the penny farthing and the first two-wheeled bicycle were both developed in that city. In 1987, Coventry City pulled off a surprise in the FA Cup final by beating Tottenham. And famous former residents include Philip Larkin, Delia Derbyshire, Frank Ifield, Clint Mansell, and star of The Omen, Billy Whitelaw. The most famous, however, I guess, is the 11th century figure Lady Godiva, who, according to legend, rode through the city naked on horseback in protest of high taxes. She could do that today, Simon. She could indeed. (laughs) But we aren't going to talk about them today, because our guest is Daniel Rachel, Penderin Prize winner, author of books about rock against racism, Britpop, The Beatles, Oasis, Ranking Roger and more. Join us as Daniel talks us through the formation of Two-Tone in the West Midlands city of Coventry. The book's been out, what, a couple of months? Yeah. Are you are you happy with how it's landed? Well, there's been some really lovely reviews, mm-hmm. and two-tone is a subject that affects people who were there deeply and who people who bought the records and, and have uh, liked the bands. It's something that stays with them. Yeah. So really, all of that is a, more a reflection of two-tone itself rather than myself, I'd say. So let's set a bit of context. Uh, let's start with World War Two. Um, what made the city a target? Well, factories, essentially. This is where the book begins, which I thought would be an unexpected way to start the story. Um, and it ends up with Joseph Goebbels, who's Minister of Propaganda um, in the uh, Nazi government, inventing the phrase Coventryate, which is to try and obliterate a city. And they almost did that um, as revenge for the Allies bombing... Germany, and it was a so personal vendetta, really. And famously, the cathedral fell apart from the surrounding walls, and it prompted the king to come to Coventry and do a walkabout. 
And I think from the footage that I've seen of that, the Pathé News footage and the, the articles that I read, his presence along with Herbert Asquith had a... Um, Herbert Morrison, sorry, had a galvanising effect on the city and was really important. And But the reason why I talk about that in um, over the first chapter is because Coventry needed to be resurrected and it needed to be given hope. And the hope came from the motor industry mm-hmm. and, and it revived a city, not only with manufacturing, but geographically, because they built a ring road around the city centre. And Coventry had a rebirth until the mid-70s, essentially, when the car industry collapsed again, unemployment was rife. And the second wave of Coventry as a city of value doesn't come from industry, but it comes, well, it does in a sense, it comes from the industry of culture, and it comes from music making. And I think there was a really important parallel to be made that the second rebirth of Coventry would be born out of the mind of a single person, Jerry Dammers. And through him, the concept of two-tone records and the specials. And so that, yeah, so it's really important, I think, to set the scene. Presumably this industrial base brings Im- immigrants into live in the area from well, when they arrive in the country, a lot of them were choosing to move to Coventry. Well, yeah, I mean, there was immigration into Coventry, and, but also that wave of musicians, well, people that have been invited into the country by the British government from the Commonwealth and particularly from across the Caribbean islands came to places like Rugby, which is near to Coventry, and, and Luton, Gloucester. And the children of those parents came somehow were attracted to Coventry as a as a musical centre and and it's those kids mixing those black kids mixing with white kids in youth centres, particularly in the youth centres in the Hollyhead Centre in Coventry in the centre of Cov, um, that would lead to those two tone bands from the area which was essentially Selector and the Specials and later the Swinging Cats. Um, but yeah, that that um, I think those mixing of kids is all important, and it's also what led to the uh, clash in London. And it's the idea of white kids and black kids that were meeting in schools, sharing their record collections, getting off on each other's clothing. The black kids getting off on white pop, which could have been the Kinks and the Specials and the Small Faces, the Specials, the Beatles, the Stones, and 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 the white kids getting off on hearing music essentially from Jamaica. And and I think that was all important to what would become the two-tone sound. So what influence do you think the transition from Jim Callaghan and Labour to Margaret Thatcher had on the city and its music? Well, I mean, in, but directly because of two-tone, I mean, those original songs that were written by Jerry Dammers and Roddy Radiation and in the, uh, selected by Neil Davis and some a couple by... Um, Pauline Black were written during the socialist Jim Callaghan years, which I think is really interesting. But the the success of those records is during the first term of office for the Conservative Party. So the the galvanising of a generation around an anti-conservative idea were actually picking up on songs that were born of a frustration 
of the failures of the socialist government, which I think is really interesting. Mm. So the suburb of Hillfields yeah. in Coventry. So this becomes a, quite an important area in the whole story. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so basically, essentially, you have a city centre and then a ring road that was built after the war. And around the ring roads are all the satellite places. And Hillfields is one of them where mm. Jerry Dammers lived and... Um, and t- the two-tone office is another where the Butts Stadium, where the specials famously did the protest against racism in 1981 and the murders and the, the stabbings that were happening in Coventry then is another place. And you, 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 if you go, it, 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 for a Londoner, it would be like going around the North Circular and coming across all the different satellite cities. But Coventry is a place you can walk across in across in 10 minutes and then five minutes after get out quick. So Jerry Dammers, as we'll discover, and perhaps is, is well known to many people who's listening to this, um, you know, is the the founder and one of the key people in, in, in Two-Tone. Tell us about his his journey then. Where, where, where does he start? What's his musical Oh, he's born in he's born in India. How did that come about? What was his mum and dad? I mean, his is dad's it, a preacher in the church. Is he? So he's there for that reason, I think think and i have asked jerry this as to whether he thinks he to having some heritage in india plays a part in his vehement anti-racism so come he's not terry hall he's not born in right. country he's not pauline black who's born in essex no he's adopted in essex um there's not many two-tone people from coventry actually you'll find more of them in the selector um but there's not many linval golding came from gloucester via Jamaica, Neville's from Jamaica, Roddy's, oh, he's from just on the outskirts of Coventry, Horace is from Kettering. Um, but he was heavily influenced by the small faces, the Who, the Beatles. But he called himself a mini-mod. Yes. Because he saw, like, little Jimmy in Quadrophenia. You know that scene where he's watching the Who on Ready, Steady, yes. Go, and his dad's, what's your, that's all this rabbish, turn it down. <laughs> Michael Elphick and is I dead. Always, when now, when I watch Quad Your Feet, yeah, Michael Elphick r- riding through the forest. Is it? Is it? Who incredibly, him, it? incredibly is in, I think in that film, he is in his early 30s. And he looks scene. about 70, doesn't he? He's <laughs> brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. He's fantastic. I've seen that that film more times his than mama, I should His, his mum and dad in that film are both absolutely perfect. Yeah, but you know, when I watch Jimmy in that, I always think that's Jimmy. I always imagine that's Jerry Dammers, but as a ten-year-old turning up, turning up the volume because uh, <laughs> the Who are on the TV, and Jerry watched that, and I think he was too young. He said to be a grown-up mod, so he calls himself a mini mod. But I think you know, and mod becomes very important because the fashion of two tone is kind of a mixture of Jamaican fashion mod. Uh, of the 60s skinhead of 69 70 and a bit of punk Mm. and uh, as Terry Hall says Jerry had been dreaming of the of two-tone and the special since he was a school kid you know and he went and Jerry went to the school where Philip Larkin went to as you mentioned in your introduction so he'd been planning this his whole life and he was desperate to get out of Coventry he was desperate, which is why on the outtakes of the front cover of the Specials album, he's got a suitcase in his hand. I said to Jerry, why have you got the suitcase? He said, because I wanted to get the hell out of here. So how did the Specials come together from there initially as the um, the Coventry Automatics? Jerry handpicked them. Right. He wanted a band that was in the image of Rock Against Racism. And to understand that, you have to realise that a Rock Against Racism gig... It, 
once it got off it off the ground was a reggae band black members punk band white members playing on the same bill then at the end of the night you'd have a jam and the jam was any members of those bands coming together and literally jamming that was the political statement of rock against racism black and white together jerry watched that and said let's actually have a band that's made up of black and white members so he went round cov and and chose the best players that suited that rate that idea zimbal was chosen because he was black but also because he had that an authentic trebly uh telecaster sound on the guitar of jamaican scar yes yeah, so jerry gets the specials together but immediately as as much as wanting to be a pop star he had this idea that it couldn't just be about the specials so when gangsters is uh when they put their own money in well the money of a of a gangster <laughs> who funds them to make their own single they don't have enough money to um do a b-side so they have this idea that they'll get somebody else to provide another musician to provide the um, B-side, which is a band, a fictitious band called The Selector. So not only was it unusual to have black and white members in the same band, I mean, that's where we were. but it was also um, the influences of some of the band members were quite wildly different. Oh, massively so. Yeah, I mean, class is a big difference and an important difference because it's middle class, working class. I mean, the body snatchers, it's upper class, middle class, working class. In, in all the bands, it's across the classes. And I think that's really important because I think when people talk about two-tone, talk about these bands, it's always assumed that the audience and the movement was working class. Well, for a start, in a, for, the, for an audience, I've never been aware of going into a gig and somebody with a clipboard. Uh, no, how would you identify yourself? Are you middle class, <laughs> mid, lower middle class? It's a nonsense, this idea it's working class. Perhaps a large swathe of working class fans were drawn to two-tone, but who knows? How is, how is that, how, how is that being recognised, you know, in an audience of 2,000? But what we do know is, is the makeup of the bands and we know the makeup of the management and that is definitely a, a class mix. But it's also as important the gender mix within two tone, yeah. You know, and that would become vital. You know, particularly and an age mix because there was a couple of members who were much older than. Well, Rankin Roger in the beat some, yeah. is sixteen. Miranda of the Body Snatchers, she when she goes on the um, uh, the Too Much Pressure tour as a support act to the Selector, she uh, is meant to be doing. She goes back, I think, uh, to do her mocks. For her A-levels. So there's low, Terry's very young. And then there's the more mature people like Jerry, Horace from the specials. Yeah. Too much, too young. You're done too much, much too young. You're married with a kid when you could be having fun with me. One of the things I found early on in the book, which I don't think I'd come across before, was... Uh, their involvement with Pete Waterman yeah. from Stock Aitken and Waterman, yeah. who, who dominated the pop charts in the in the eighties. But after Late this 80s, period, yeah. so what was the dalliance with him? How did he come? So to Pete, be Pete Waterman had uh, used to play soul records in Coventry at clubs, and he ran a record shop um, in the same uh, building as where Virgin Records was, where Brad, the drummer from the Specials, worked, and then uh, he saw 
um, Pete saw the nascent specials, Coventry Automatics, invested into them, took them down to London, recorded a demo, shot that demo around record companies and got absolutely nowhere. Uh, and then in this brief period of effectively acting as manager, uh, I will call them the specials, uh, as Jerry tells a story, attempted to teach Terry how to dance. <laughs> as Jerry says, if you've ever seen Pete Waterman dance, that's enough reason to sack off the manager, and they did. <laughs> so they recorded Gangsters at Horizon Studios in Coventry, and The Selector ends up as the B-side. Well, The Selector was a song recorded by Neil Davis um, with Roger Lomas, who will be an important producer because he ends up doing Selector records, but also virtually all of the Bad Manners hits of the 80s. And um, Neil brought in uh, Brad to play drums from the, um, when before he was in the specials. He was in a band called Transpose Men. Uh, a band that Neil and Brad they did they did songs like on my radio and other songs that would become famous for the selector and a trombone player they brought in. Uh, this was recorded in 1978 and um, and Neil got an acetate of that record pressed, which at that point in the history of music is a quite a big thing to do. I mean, you had the precedence of the of Buzzcocks doing Spiral Scratch, but bands pressing up their own records is not some is pretty rare. Um, and so that record, Jerry, or it's suggested by somebody in the specials that should become the flip side of Gangsters, and Jerry suggests that they go and overdub an offbeat. Uh, scar influence guitar to this track which to that point had been Kingston Affair and for the purposes of the two-term record became then known as uh, The Selector by the band The Selectors and then you mentioned this place in Hillfield um, which is um, Charlie Anderson's house who's the bass player who will become the bass player of The Selector you have this extraordinary meeting where a hugely important reggae band in Coventry is Hardtop 22. The members of Hardtop 22 come to this two up, two down in Hillfields. Neil Davis comes to a meeting and Limval invites Pauline Black to the meeting too. And what happens at the meeting is Neil plays on a, on a dance set, the selector, which is now in the charts, courtesy of gangsters. And they decide there and then to become this fictitious band, the selector, and become the real band. Um, and literally within a month, they're playing a gig in Shrewsbury. Two weeks later, they're supporting the specials in Leeds and turn up dressed in as identikit specials. And Jerry said, I didn't know if to be offended or flattered. <laughs> The name Two Tone, where does that come from? And when did Jerry start to think about calling his label Two Tone? Two Tone has nothing to do with uh, bringing black and white together. That was all in the received by the fans. Two Tone means two tone material, the iridescent look on a, on the material of a tonic suit. Jerry was flirting with the idea of tonic records, T O N I K, then T O N I C as in tonic suit again. Um, 
then with Horace, they're both art students at Lanchester Poly. They come up with this idea of two-tone records and and Horace draws the number two over the the letters, tone. Um, and so that becomes the name of the record label. Speaking to Jerry, he's right. You never, you, he, they never talk about this idea of bringing it all together through the identity of a record label. That said... It's all the way through the lyricism of the special. So there's a kind of a contradiction. But, you know, as you well know from reading the book, I embrace contradiction. And I think the whole story of Two-Tone is about contradiction in, in many, many areas and, and, and spheres. But, yeah, I mean, to Jerry has been designing the uh, the label for months, if not years before. And the original, if you see, if you see Jerry's original of the Two-Tone Man, which was Walt Jabsko taken from the Whalers, Bob Marley's band, uh, and the image of Peter Tosh. The actual original is of a woman, hmm. um, Bonnie and Clyde style. Somebody being snatched. So the logo came next, and then the single ends up coming out on Rough Trade. Yeah, well, it's pressed by the specials first. Then they go down to Rough Trade and say, we've got a record. And... Um, it's Jeff Travis. Jeff Jeff says we'll do it. Friend of the book club. Yeah, he's great, Jeff. Um, and Jeff was at Cambridge with Jerry's brother. Wow. wow. Yeah, Chris Chris Dammers. So he knew. I don't think he realises this until later, but he realises a connection. And Jeff says, yeah, we'll put out gangsters. Now, it's interesting because I spoke to Jeff for the book and he regrets not being organised enough, ready enough to take on the specials and take on Two-Tone. And he said practically Chrysalis grabbed it from under their um, under eyes, their noses. really. Yeah, and so it's on Rough Trade for a little while and then it becomes a Chrysalis release. And it's, and it's really when the specials do the deal with Chrysalis that it becomes a, a hit in August 1979. Yeah, so it got to number six. They were on top of amazing. the pubs. Yeah. John Peel played it quite a lot. Yeah, then, he was playing it way before that. And then pretty quickly they signed to Chrysalis. Yeah. But first, tell us a little bit about Jerry Demmer's demands for signing to a label. I, will, I wouldn't call it demands, really. I'd call it having a vision. Yes. And, and I, I, I think pretty much everything Jerry ever did was from, a, from the point of view of a visionary. He could see it. He could see a song and know how to arrange it. He could see two-tone and could visualise it. He knew how it would work. And basically, I mean, again, this is utterly stunning and speaks so well and commendably of Jerry. He wanted a movement so there'd be numbers behind this idea of a potential movement. So he said he charged the de facto manager of the specials, Rick Rogers, to go and negotiate this idea where if you were going to sign the specials, what you had to agree to was a label that was going to be called Two-Tone that and Two-Tone were going to bring to this record label 10 other artists of which they they were going to record a record by and the whoever signed it had to release six of those records and would give the budget to make that happen. Um, the rec obviously the record labels were saying who were the other bands? Mm -hmm. Jerry, no idea. <laughs> uh, and and what and Chrysalis agree to it. It's 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 unbelievable. And what we do know in hindsight is Jerry brings them Madness, the Beat, the Body Snatchers, the Selector, all these bands. 
it's in, it's incredible that Chrysalis agreed to the idea. And he can't have had an idea, can he? Because those bands didn't exist when he... They did exist. Did I think Jerry Was met, he aware of them? Was it, there a scene? Yeah, inklings of them. He'd said to... He'd met Suggs of madness and said, I'm going to start a, I'm going to start a label, Suggs. <laughs> Suggs at three o'clock in the morning. They're sleeping at his mum's flat on the top of the court road, having, you know, done a gig at the Hope and Anchor. Yes, we'll He's get on to the Hope and Anchor shortly. Yeah, I'm doing a gig, I'm doing a gig, i this label. And you can just imagine Suggs... Seeing this this man without any teeth who hasn't got anywhere to sleep, he's gonna start this label. It's gonna be bigger than Motown, Suggs. Yeah, it's right, mate. So it's an interesting of- parallel, isn't it? I mean, you know, we've we've hinted, you know, post-war the revival of Coventry as a manufacturing town, as a car town, yeah. and the other car town we think of, Car City, is of course Detroit. Yeah, and Detroit has Motown, and Coventry has uh, Tutum. Yeah, and the production line idea yeah. jerry instead of producing a car is going to produce a record and instead of having an identifiable look of it's going to have an identifiable sound brilliant i think the thing that's quite startling though is because we we see this don't we the the galvanizing using your word daniel the galvanizing impact in in other cities i'm thinking of manchester i'm thinking of liverpool uh, around about the same period work where all these bands are you know, from the same location. But with the remarkable thing about Two Tone is, of course, you know, you've just mentioned Madness, a London band. Yep. Uh, you know, they're, they're, these bands that Selector, as we found out, are, are, are local to them. But then the Beat and the yeah, others. Beat Birmingham, of, Body yeah. Snatchers are London. Yeah, so that's something that's a little bit different. Yeah. I, I think that's quite interesting. And it's, it's crazy. It's crazy that, it, that just So none of the... them knew that the other was... Creating the music. No, because famously, um, Andy Andy Cox, who's the uh, main guitar player in the beat, reads an article on the specials um, as the beat are getting themselves together and throws the paper down on the rehearsal room floor and says, <laughs> "We're ruined. Somebody's doing it already." They, and they've stolen only... my idea. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then when the specials turn up at the Hope and Anchor, Suggs is like. They look like us. And then they see members of Madness eventually see them play. And it's like, and they kind of sound like us, but they're better. And, you know, Jerry is aware of the beat. I think he sees the beat in early 79 in the Birmingham market. But, um, and so, you know, whereas the Body Snatchers form, Nikki Summers forms the band because she's seen the specials and wants to be part of it. Mm. Madness exists already. The beat exists already. The selector or that are reluctant to step away from reggae and to kind of forge the idea of a rock pop reggae scar idea. So, but yeah, it's in the firmament in all these different areas. And, and it's quite, it, it it's odd, but at the same time, what I was saying earlier about black youth, first generation, second generation kids bringing their influences of their parents from the Caribbean Mixing with white kids in schools and in youth centres, it's it's kind of not surprising that they're all getting into a similar kind of musical look. Right, so let's bring madness into it. So what actually happened at this first meeting with the specials? It's That's the ho- very the, hard to decipher. At the Hope and Anchor. Because, because, you, because the madness version of it is not true, I don't think, to what really happened because the dates do not align. And I think there's a there's a confusion because 
Matheson select and special soon play together on the same bill at the Hope and Anchor. But there's but I don't think they saw the band, the specials, the first time that they played the Hope and Anchor. So there's all these different, but it, in a way, it doesn't ultimately matter. Something went no. down at the Hope and Anchor, and it and it's all around the jukebox because for Suggs has or and his entourage have a have the Gangster Seven Inch, and in fact, when they first put it on the jukebox, which kind of, it's Madness's HQ, the Hope and Anchor. And they have they are, they rule the roost on the jukebox. So they have gangsters, but they play the other side, and they're getting off on the selector. This eerie, kind of weird sounding record, and they think the bass line's brilliant. And when they do flip it, they love gangsters. Then suddenly the specials come down, and the, and they get talking. And Jerry says, "When I get my label together, I'll sign you." And um, in the meantime madness and i've seen this and they send the cassette of their stuff with a two-page eight four resume of what they do and they try and sell themselves to jerry but in the interim of that demo uh madness go back into the studio and record and that's what becomes the first two turn single But not in Orange Street A ghost dance is preparing you got to help us with your feet The specials of Madness play a, a few times They play the Nashville um, in, I think, May of 1979 And then with the Selector, all three bands comprise the Two-Tone Tour Which uh, in October hits the Electric Ballroom Sorry, no no, there's in, a, in, well, in, they in do. July. No, you you're kind of pretty much right, really. But they do a summer July gig at the Electric ah. Ballroom, which is really where the idea of it all really explodes. The three bands together, and there's wonderful descriptions of that night from various members of the band and management of sweat dripping off the walls and the dance floor just going bonkers. And can you, you know, nobody really knows any of the songs, and the fans do, and they're all going mad, you know. And at the Nashville, when Madness and the Specials play, they somebody hand scrawls the return of the Rude Boys on a white sheet and hangs it behind them. And they all um, they all pose in front of it, and you know it's it's really fantastic because the, the the bands decide to fall in with one another. They're not they're not like you're better than us or we're the best. Well, they probably are like that, but they're also doing it together. You know, they play up in Liverpool together, and that's the first time there's a stage invasion when, um, and that becomes a key thing of two tone gigs. But the thing, yeah, the two tone tour just explodes just in the first week of when um in october when the specials album comes out madness's album comes out and really all that anybody knows of um the selector at that point is too much pressure on my radio so they they were really up against it i guess i'd I'd urge people to go and seek out a book that came out about three or four years ago um it's called foreground music and it's by graham duff yeah now, Graham is a screenwriter, but a music fan. Yeah. And, the, and his book is simply 20 gigs or so that he went to in his life. But one of them he writes about, and I think absolutely fantastically, is attendance on the two-tone tour. Which tour. which one? Which night? Uh, I can't remember now. I can't remember which, which venue. I'd have to go back. But okay. basically, all the, all the groups are utterly fantastic. And yeah. you've described the sweat coming off. But then they seem to be eclipsed by the one that follows uh, until the, the climax of, of the specials. But it's wonderful, wonderful writing. And for me, 
because I would have read those reviews. I mean, I'm 16, I'm 17. I'm going to parties where (laughs) One Step Beyond is being played. I think I can remember the one of the first times Peel plays Gangsters. So it's you know, and it's number six in the charts. It's inescapable all of this stuff. But I wouldn't have read a review. Uh, it's there's a gap of 38 years between me reading the enemy or sounds review of those gigs mm. and then graham writing about it and reminding me and and it just oh my word i just, it's one of those things the writing is so vivid you think oh i wish i was there yeah <laughs> yeah so just to give an indication of the specials profile at this point they make the cover of smash hits and then it's decided that Elvis Costello is going to produce the debut album. So how did that come about? Because Elvis Costello went up and down the country following the specials all around and started dressing as a Rudy. <laughs> it's brilliant. And he almost released a record on the label. There is, there is an right. Elvis Costello record on Two Turn, but it wasn't ever officially released. I mean, it, I mean, amongst Two Turn fans, the catalogue number of each record... It's kind of quaint and nice, but, you know, Gangsters TT1, Selector TT2, The Principal Madness TT3. Well, TT7 is Elvis Costello and the attractions can't stand up for falling down, but it's also too much too young by the specials. So this record is pressed and then it's not released. So the album ends up coming out the same day the two-tone tour begins. And my book came out of. Ah, in, wonderful. In October 23rd. Oh, well, there we go. Was that planned? Yeah. Oh, well, I suggested it. I said, "Are you like train spotters at White Rabbit? <laughs> Do you fancy this date to coincide when they play Brighton?" It's a pretty... the same day that Juliet Devee became the manager of the Selector as well. Mm-hmm. Let's bring the women into this. Yes, let's do that for sure. So it's a pretty exhaustive schedule. There's some unusual stops: Swindon, Plymouth, Hanley, Derby, Stirling. But um, could you could you give us a flavour as to what this what ha- as to what this tour was like? Mayhem. I mean, you can take it from whichever angle you like. If you take it from the musicians, Madness are running up and down the coach, pulling down their trousers, shouting out the windows. Uh, and and Suggs describes it as it, it, it's divided into thirds and the thirds are whichever drug you're into. And at the back is Rico Rodriguez in a cloud of marijuana and anybody that dares to go to this kind of... To the back of the coach. You know, Pauline is is just looking on aghast, thinking this lot are terrible. They're like out of school. The other lot think they're on the... They've never Half of them have never left London. They're on a school trip. For the fans, they play £2.50, two quid even, and they're getting to see three bands in the style of a Motown review. And you can guarantee from the first whack of the snare of the selector to the final smash on the ride by Brad of the specials that that audience will not have stopped dancing for three hours. The, the dance floors were electric. These are song bands that are, are going to all be on top of the pops. They're in the top of the echelons of the charts, as you say, on the front pages of the glossy smash hits. They're on in all the music papers. I mean, this is... This is instantaneously a success. This is a commercial success that is greater than punk, which is quite something in itself. You know, The Clash never made the top 10. The Clash never went on top of the pops. These bands are embracing being pop stars and, and they, they go for it with all their worth. And it's just, it's, and I think it forms a, a really exciting chapter within the book, really, of the two-tone tour. 
One of my favourite bits in the book is when the tour stops in Hove oh. and they take a team photo on the beach. Yeah, Chalky Davis snaps him on the beach and he and he's just you know, he's just trying to get another shot when Rick Rogers shouts out, I've got your tour money and they all just leg it <laughs> and they chase him down the beach. <laughs> but again I remember that from the face magazine. Yeah, uh, you know, it was in the face. They didn't course, show it till the, about six months later. No. I don't you know the very first edition of the face has Jerry Dammers on the on the cover of That's course. Right. Now famously during the tour all three acts appear on the same episode of Top of the Pops. Wow. They do, do and they don't. Oh, tell more. Well, they <laughs> yes, they're all on in November on Top of the Pops, but the selectors is a pre-record because they've um. been on already. That night <laughs> madness get on a plane and, and hot-foot it down to Bristol to play a gig, the specials get on a train and they get, and they get there kind of five minutes after the madness. From <laughs> Top of the pop, straight to Bristol, straight on stage, bam. <laughs> we switch now. There's the famous Dance Craze documentary yeah. in uh, 1981, which I think was... Has that been reissued recently? Yeah, uh, it's doing yeah for the, the first time, yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> I got a phone call. Jerry said, uh, "Daniel, you come to the come to the uh, National Film Theatre and watch this film with me." And I was thinking, oh, he's pretending. It's it's really going to be like hundreds of people all coming to watch the the reissue of the film." And I turned up, and it was me and Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> so we watched the film together, and then at the end of it, he said, "He said, Daniel, I think the beat might be better than the specials." He said, tell me the truth, who's the better band? I said, of course it's the specials. He said, are you already saying that? <laughs> but, yeah, but uh, uh, but this film, amazing, it's an amazing story. I mean, it, um, Massot, Joe Massot. Joe Massot. Was in, is, in, is in LA and sees madness falling around by the poolside and he's really taken by these seven people from London. And basically there and then persuades him he's going to make a film about them, Come, comes back to London, tells his 14-year-old son. And his 14-year-old son says, no, you got it all wrong. Madden's a part of this thing called Two-Tone and tells his dad all about these other bands and who everybody is. And the next thing, they're on the motorway up to Coventry. They've got a meeting with the specials and the selection. And he pitches them in this film. Um, and the specials aren't certain. Massot continues film and one by one he films all the bands over 1980 and the result of that I mean there's loads of stories gangster stories CIA gets involved in this story Gavrick Losey gets involved the famous son of Joseph Losey very famous film producer the third man that kind of thing and the go between great great stories um, and it ends up with a film coming out in the um, early years of 1981 plays to all the cinemas theatres across the UK and there's a soundtrack um, goes into the top five of the charts brilliant film and critically young people like me love it because it's for people that can't are too young to get to the tours mm. the bands and the uh, musicians hate it because there's no documentary element to it so Jerry walks out and uh, various artists walk out and then on the day of the, the launch on Tottenham Court Road they invite all these kids that can get free tickets so they, they, they enter a competition and all the kids rip down the posters off the wall and nick all the records off the Radio 1 DJ who's the host <laughs> so the whole thing turns into mayhem which is just great because Two Tones like that it's like this kind of 
you know, this put together thing. It gives the impression of like just people in the back room of a youth club coming up with ideas. But it's but but really it's meticulously organised and beautifully presented. But it's got it's always got this mayhem ad hoc element to it. I remember um, watching a documentary about the specials. It must have been around this time, I guess. And I'm sure some of it was shot in a house. Looked like a terrorist house. What would that would was that something else? What was that documentary? Was it especially about two tone, or was yeah, it a strand is, on something else? Just Jeff Parks, who went to the BBC and had made a film about Sham Sixty Nine, really fantastic film. Tell us the truth, and said there's a phenomenon happening. Uh, in, uh, let's can we go to Coventry and film it? And he got permission. Took the cameras up at the tail end of seventy nine, filmed the special selector at Tiffany's. Um, and and you're absolutely right. They went into Jerry's flat, uh, where Two Tone Records was uh, run at the Coventry end, and filmed them. You know, Jerry famously putting out checks and contracts from Bernie Rhodes and throwing cassettes over the floor, pulling down the clothes on the clothes. You know, where he says this yeah. is the costume department, and it's just a brilliant thirty minute documentary. We've shown it a couple of times at the launches right. of these Two Tone books. These two term books, this two term book, and um, it's a really fab. It's like a time capsule, like arena documentaries are, and it, it it it. I've seen the effect it has on an audience. Just before I talk about too much too young, it kind of takes them back to this point in time, and it's really amazing footage of the specials on stage, but also the selector in Horizon Studios kind of in the middle of them recording their album Too Much Pressure. So yeah, great documentary. Um, and all those characters behind it tell their story in the book. I suspect it's up on YouTube somewhere. We'll go and have a look at Do you know what? That. It wasn't Ooh. for 40 years until no it just got reissued in the last year. Of course, all us lot fans had it on bootlegs or on mm. our VHSs, but, yeah, now it's official. It's out there, yeah. So in early 1980, too much, the Too Much Too Young EP goes to number one. Yeah. <laughs> what was number one before Too Much Too Young? What did they knock off? Do you know that? Don't have to. I think, Although you've just written I a book think, about this. Do you know, I think it's in the book. <laughs> I think it's Coward of the County, Kenny Rogers. Everyone considered yes, it. Yes, it is. And that's recorded at the Lyceum. Yeah. Live. Yeah. Um, and then, and the, Well, the A-side is and the B-side at Tiffany's. I think it's the greatest one, the greatest EP ever recorded. <gasps> He says, thinking <laughs> quickly of Beatles EPs and Stones EPs. And- Coming back to what's truly remarkable is the period we've been talking about here. It's, it's just over 18 months from inception to chart-topping success, etc. It, it burns brightly. So for that reason, there's obviously a lot more we haven't had a chance to even start talking about today. So at some point in the future, hopefully we'll talk to Daniel again. We'll cover the success of Ghost Town the free Nelson Mandela concerts, the two-tone in the, in the United States and, and the downfall of the label in the mid-80s. We should mention, because this is a music map, the Coventry Music Museum and the two-tone village. Tell me about the two-tone village, because when I, when I, uh, I think of that, I think of model villages. Uh, whether is that it, was the is two-tone, two-tone village tone. Cover a model village? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, with Hornby trains, but um, yeah, uh, and and also uh, remember if you if you do travel to Coventry, when you get off the bus station, there is of course the two tone mural uh, at Coventry bus station. At the bus station, yeah, yeah, no, that's really good actually. 
Right, true or not, Mark? I'm giving you an easy one to start with. Two-Tone's first headquarters was actually the living room of Jerry Dammer's flat, 51 Albany Road, Coventry. True or not? I'd love to think that it was 53 Albany Road, and you were just trying to trick me, uh, but I, I don't think you're capable of that. So I'm going to go, uh, why would you make that up? It's true, obviously. It is indeed true. The uh, flat where he lived was was the base for the record label. Second one, so two of these three were filmed in Coventry, and one was not. And you're going to tell me which one was not. First one, the iconic Mini Coopers in the Italian job, supposedly in the sewers of Turin, were actually filmed in Coventry. Second one, 90s sitcom Keeping Up Appearances, which we all remember for Hyacinth Bucket. And the third one, the Doctor Who episode Black Orchid. Which of these was not filmed in Coventry? Uh, not true. I, uh, the Doctor Who. That is correct. The, uh, there was a Doctor Who episode filmed in Coventry, though. Not that one. It was Doctor Who episode The Shakespeare Code, which is starring David Tennant, where the Doctor meets William Shakespeare. So there we go. At the end of each episode, we all make a recommendation to our listeners. This could be something you've loved for a long time or a recent discovery. Today, I am going to recommend the Madness book. It's called Before We Was We. It's a really fun read, it's solely about the early years. It goes through the meeting at the Hope and Anchor and the Two-Tone Tour and all the stuff that we talked about. And there is a wonderful description of the Nashville venue in Kensington in there. So that's mine. Mark? I always choose books. I'm going to do that again this time. Um, it was a re-release. Uh, but I've long said, uh, and it all depends who's asking, uh, what's your favourite music book of all time? And I often say... It's the creation record story, My Magpie Eyes Are Hungry for the Prize, by uh, David Kavanagh. Um, David, a wonderful book. It is a wonderful book. David sadly um, passed away a few years ago. Um, this book first came out, I don't know, 15 years ago, and it was republished uh, this year by Faber. And if you haven't read it, you should. David was a, a brilliant writer. One of the things, I, I have been speaking with publishers. Whenever anyone asks, I would love to see a compendium of David's writing for Q and for the, the other magazines. I, I've, I never, he wasn't a writer I was aware of or was reading about or looked for, but plenty of people did. And I came across a piece he did on Ian McCulloch um, in Q which is one of the most astonishing kind of interviews I've ever read. Um, I am conscious, of course, that if a publisher uh, went to the trouble of putting this out, it probably sold about 500 copies. But I will buy more than one, I promise you. Daniel, what about you? I'm going to recommend a little coterie of authors, as I'm a big reader of fiction, and point people towards three of my favourites. Barbara Kingsolver... Carson McCullers, Cormac McCarthy, and Rose Tremaine. None of which I've read. So thank you for those. You Barbara haven't read Kingsolver. any Cormac McCarthy? Uh, the horse, uh, the, the, the road. Horses. All the pretty horses. All the, part all of the pretty horses. borderline trilogy, yeah. No, I have. So Amazing. I have read some of his. Absolutely beautiful. <laughs> 
So, all that remains is to say a big thank you to Daniel Rachel for coming along and talking about uh, his two-tone book. Uh, We have a new website. Go and look for us, rockandrollbookclub.co.uk. That's the one. Uh, And our Instagram and all that kind of thing. So, thank you for listening. Uh, See you again next time.